Hi, Mark. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me today. Good to be here. So uh, first, I think the best starting point is probably to provide a little context to the listener about who you are, where you come from, what have you studied, where have you worked, what are you doing these days? What's your background, especially with nuclear power? Sure. So I'm born and raised in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, flyover territory in the United States. Your listeners from other parts of the world may know us best for the terrorist bombing using fertilizer in the mid-90s. I was downtown in daycare at the time. But we're also a state that has a big aviation industry and cattle and farming and oil and gas. So that's my origin. And then I studied at Oklahoma State University, mechanical engineering, aerospace engineering, and Russian language and literature. It's an interesting combo. No, I have no Russian family background. I'm just interested in Russian piano music. So I decided to study it because I could. Awesome. And then I went to study in Cambridge University for my graduate studies. And that's when I was switching over from dreams of building rockets or riding rockets all the way to nuclear power plants right here on Earth. Awesome. And as you see, you switch at a certain point. So did you ever believe kind of the main narrative about like nuclear? Oh, it's old stuff. It's dangerous. It's too expensive anyway. Like, is there anything that you can remember that changed your mind, right? You might have to reach out to the archives of the mind, but is there is there a moment or did you always believe it was the thing to do? Like most young men who are already, you might say the opposite of risk averse, right? We have a a reckless nature and we discount risks. Risks are what other people tell us they're afraid of, but young people like thrilling sports and exciting things and fast cars and stuff like that. So I'm definitely not alone in saying I was never scared of it and may have been able to repeat that other people think it's scary, but it would have never caused me doubt, which by the way, is a terrible difficulty. It's a it's an actual handicap that has to be overcome in learning to talk with the public. That is coming to nuclear as a risk-seeking young man, rather than arriving at it through a sudden realization or transformation of attitude, because it makes it hard to connect, at least at first, with why people could be scared of something that's so exciting. Hmm. So no, it's just the conversion was just, I thought energy was mainly oil and gas. Then it was about saying on your electricity bill, yes, I want wind turbine electricity from the plains of Oklahoma. That was energy to me. And it was coming back to energy through something exciting and new that brought me to nuclear. Right. And was it mostly like an intellectual realization? Like with the engineering background, was it like looking at the numbers and like, wow, this thing is like orders and orders and orders of magnitude more concentrated power than everything else we have, like with a tiny amount of uranium, a small footprint, we can power the world. Was it kind of like more like that or was more like kind of more the this emotional stuff you're talking about, right? It's, it's, it's exciting. It's cool. It's, it's the frontier. Part of the joy and burden of being trained as an engineer, and especially in my case, like many of us coming from multi-generations of engineers in the family, the numbers are running in the background all the time. Hmm. And what numbers? I mean, the approximate scale of things all the time. Somebody says something about how bad or good a thing is, and any engineer listening is automatically putting together a picture of whether that's important or not, or big or not, or fast or slow, relative to other things that are fast and slow and can be either calculated, estimated, or measured, right? So that's mm. always there. I would say what happened was I was worried that there would not be enough adventure left in fast planes or rockets. 
If I had come uh, to the end of my undergraduate degrees just a few years later, I think it would have been impossible to stay away from a SpaceX. And in fact, some of my most talented peers went straight to SpaceX after graduation and have done extraordinary things. Somehow it just hadn't captured me yet. And I, my dreams of space and big growth and fast things, it was starting to fade a bit. It already then was clear that the future of aircraft in many ways, well, it's drones. So the piloting part is gone and it just was less interesting. And I really direct my attention to exciting things. I'm just, I don't know, is that a character flaw or not? I, I, I'm not sure. So when I turned back towards Earth a little and got lucky in finding some post on the internet about how there are these magic thorium reactors that they don't want you to know about. Well, I saw that and thought, oh yeah, nuclear. I remember hearing a bit about nuclear. I visited Los Alamos National Labs as a kid, just as a little tourist trip. I spent two summers there even. I spent a summer there, in this case, before deciding on nuclear energy as a path. I spent a whole summer there and it still didn't quite capture my attention. And I've been to Hiroshima Memorial in Japan, the Peace Memorial. And it's still, I mean, maybe people can say, oh, well, that's different. That's nuclear weapons, not nuclear energy. But certainly most of the world seems to think they're kind of in the same bucket. That still wasn't enough. The events of March 2011, I was overseas when it happened in a developing country. A man walked into our village with a boombox on his shoulder with a radio and we listened to the reactor meltdowns. That still didn't capture my attention, for good or for ill. I even had visited the Chernobyl Museum in Kiev. And still nothing had caught quite my attention. Hmm. Those were all history. Those were all were backwards looking, right? right? Things that had already occurred. I'm looking for the future. And it was just a crappy little post on the internet. And gosh, I really wish I had a better conversion moment or a conversion story or an inspiration moment. But it was just seeing that in the context of needing to choose a future path and realizing, wait, I could do engineering things where we have this massive cultural problem this communications issue, probably, a huge scientific development issue. And each reactor, the longer it takes, the bigger the career it might be. It's a problem so big, it could last me a lifetime. From that moment, I was hooked. Hmm. That was it. Just reading a post on the internet, seeing a few minutes of a video, and I was hooked. It was the future vision, right? So many people are backwards looking, but we need those people who are looking forward and trying to build a better future. That's kind of the next thing I want to talk about is the psychology of nuclear power. It feels to me like humanity has discovered one of the most powerful forces in the universe and how to harness it. But because of a bunch of kind of accidents of history, it kind of got all tangled up with a bunch of stuff where we never fully took advantage. Like nuclear power came with nuclear weapons and the idea of nuclear war. And for a whole generation, the two were linked, like impossible to separate, right? It was all about like the bombings in Japan, the H-bomb test and the Cold War. In fact, I, the linkage goes deeper than a lot of us young people want to acknowledge. Countries like Sweden had to choose whether to give up their nuclear weapons development program along with their nuclear reactor program. Spain was another country who, under a dictatorship, was developing a nuclear weapons and a nuclear energy program. Like, we can keep going and finding all these countries around the world that were working on nuclear weapons and nuclear energy. In fact, you know what's really hard to find? It's hard to find countries that were not working on both simultaneously, at least initially. Right, which is probably why this Torium Avenue never got explored that much, because it was harder to make weapons with it. Well, we'll set that aside for a moment. And okay. let me just say, there's a second stage that's interesting. There's a number of countries that at the point that they felt either safe enough or uninspired enough that they dropped their weapons program, they also turned entirely against their nuclear energy and started stripping it out. Hmm. 
But on the psychology, right, there's this whole generation that had this in mind. And then I feel like the younger generations get an echo of that, right? Just only through their, their parents, through the culture and all that. And then my generation, like, what's my introduction to the, just, just the ideas, right? The Simpsons, I have this theory that they, they only tried to be funny and they had no intention of anything with it. But the way they portrayed it- And now they're pro-nuclear. Now the show is back to showing pro-nuclear elements like pretty frequently. I, it's oh, really? kind of crazy. I haven't watched in like 10 years. I haven't either, but if there's a nuclear clip, I watch it for sure. <laughs> well, that's good to know. But all of the ideas loaded up in my subconscious were all about like these plants run by a bunch of idiots, like nuclear waste dripping everywhere, two-headed fishes, and who's it benefiting? Well, a sociopathic billionaire and like all of the things that you kind of load up at 10 years old or something, it's all negative, right? And you're forgetting one of the important ones. Nuclear plants are doing something fundamentally evil. They're making energy, which is bad. So right. you're, if you miss out on that one, you miss out on one of the most important elements of the anti-nuclear movement, the assumption that humans themselves are the disease, right? that energy is the spreading of that disease, and that stopping energy is one of the most important ways that you can reduce the disease of humanity. Yeah, the, the romantic environmental view of like anything that goes back to the way things were, to nature is fundamentally good. Anything that moves away from that is bad. And also it, it feels like this is a different, different tangent, but I used the example uh, at one point that people think cigarettes are bad, right? But what's bad about them is like they cause cancer and they stink and this and that. But if cigarettes were actually like healthy for you, right? They smell good, they gave you vitamins, and there was nothing bad about it. The cigarette itself is not bad, right? So energy, if it pollutes, that's the bad part. But if you can produce the energy without the negative side effects, right? But energy has been linked for so long with pollution and with environmental destruction that they, they kind of use it as a proxy for the bad things. Did you know that in, let's, let's push on this a little bit. Here's some crazy things. Something like half of French people, down from maybe 75% a few years ago, think that their nuclear fleet is causing climate change. Wow. Why? Because climate change is bad and bad things do bad things, right? So nuclear is bad things. So it must right. be doing climate change. Most French people didn't like nuclear until the last few years, which of course it's already too late to reverse some of the most severe damage that they've done to their own fleet, trying to copy Germany, but without the competence. Um, <laughs> but like French people thought that they needed their nuclear fleet. They didn't like it, but they thought that they needed it. They just had to decarbonize. <laughs> by getting rid of nuclear. That's the level of discourse about good things and bad things. So I'm glad you brought it up. And look, you were looking for this conversion moment, asking about it for nuclear energy. I'll tell you what I keep finding is that I've met people who claim to be skeptical and resistant to nuclear energy, but then they say something like, but of course we have to have it. So I, I guess we have to figure out how to build a bunch of it. And I'm like, you weren't actually against nuclear energy. You just thought that it's immoral to be for it. And you're worried about offending people. Right. And then other people are like, I have no problem with nuclear energy. Nuclear energy would, should, would be fine if it just weren't bad at all these things and terrible. And then you start addressing some of them and you say, good point on that. But fortunately, here's an example of why you're not really correct, but I see where you're going, but here's the evidence. They don't want the evidence. What they meant was they like to be seen as a person who's filled with facts and not emotion but they're actually have an emotional block against nuclear energy. So facts aren't welcome. They're not looking for them. You have to find whatever that emotional blockage, that scared child in there that has some traumatic experience that they associate with nuclear energy. And in some cases it's something like, oh, the second Terminator movie with Linda Hamilton, like, you know, 
going like this against the fence as she watches a dream version of herself burn to death over her child and then get skeletonized by a blast wave. So like that stands in for a lot of nuclear horror right there. Certainly you have to have a lot of nuclear horror in your heart in order to film a scene like like make it come up with a scene like that and film it, right? So finding those triggers, those key things and addressing them becomes really important when you start to understand that the person you're talking to is not they don't welcome facts or processes or paths to overcome their objections. Yeah, it, it feels like humanity in general is extremely mimetic, right? So people look around and figure out what other people believe, what's the smart thing to believe in my circles, and they kind of copy that. But if you scratch below the surface, if you ask about details, you realize they, they never really thought about it, right? They kind of, they, they, they're pressing play on the recording of someone else. And someone else may have gotten it from someone else. And you have to go many generations to find the source, right? And the source may not have good intentions. Well, you know what, you know when we'll get rid of this aspect of humanity? Do you know when we'll reform it and be rid of it? Probably never. never. Yeah. Never. Just this morning, I, my colleague, Maddie Hilly, former colleague and manager at Environmental Progress. Now she is part of the campaign for the Green Nuclear Deal here in the US. And uh, I work with her on some of our research projects. Anyway, she posted a thread this morning on Chernobyl. Timely because of all the violence occurring at Zaporizhia nuclear plant, the largest in Europe that yeah. may cause an unfolding nuclear accident, right? So she posted a thread that's doing something really important. It's disentangling the physical accident at Chernobyl from the memes that came out of Chernobyl. Hmm. Or the way I'm going to put it from now on, I, I did a quote tweet to send the thread off. The way I put it is this. There's Chernobyl, the molecules, and Chernobyl, the memes. The molecules killed several dozen people. The memes, millions and counting. Right. And you can't just, even if you shut down every nuclear plant on Earth, all of the angst around nuclear that comes from nuclear bombs or just all the weird anxieties that we want to blame nuclear for. They're going to focus on the medical nuclear. They're going to focus on the nuclear waste. They're going to focus on the nuclear decommissioning activities to shut down all the plants. It's not going away just because the plants aren't there. It doesn't have anything to do with the plants operating. They don't want the plants on as part of wanting all nuclear things gone from the universe. Right. And as if shutting down power plants is going to reduce the number of nuclear weapons around, right? As if shutting down the nuclear plants is going to reduce people's fear of nuclear. It doesn't. Right. In Germany, I met with the, I keep trying to meet with the nuclear industry, which until the Ukraine war had no hope of survival. None. None. They just said, quit harassing us. Don't try to save our plants. This is annoying. You're giving our employees false hope, blah, blah, blah. It was not fun meetings. So for years, we tried to get them to have some hope and fight back a little. And once we got a meeting where they said, hey, just stop on the reactors, they're not. But we have a different problem. Maybe you could tell us about. We're like, okay. And they said, we thought that getting rid of the nuclear reactors would be the end of it. But now they're trying to shut down all of the other like consulting activities we do and all the other industrial activities. And they're trying to make the German government divest from its uranium enrichment. And I'm like, you have no idea why people are against. The people against you don't know what a nuclear plant is. They don't know what's inside. They don't care. They don't know what the waste looks like. They don't, they're, they're not upset about the molecules. They're doing some spiritual journey on yep. memes and it, you can't stop them by shutting your nuclear plants. They will not get an emotional burden off their chest. They will turn, especially the professionals, and especially if they're getting money from outside Germany to cripple Germany's energy supply, they're not gonna stop just because there's no nuclear plants left to protest. They're gonna fight every last thing. They're gonna try to shut down your nuclear medicine departments. They're gonna try to shut down your cyclotrons. They'll of course try to shut down your enrichment. That's the thing, right? It's uh, uh, 
radiation itself is so weird to humans, right? Our intuition can't deal with it, right? It's invisible. It's it's supposed to be. It depends. I, I mean, the average person, right? And once you study it, no, it no, makes no. A lot it of depends. Sense. It's on the edge. It's on the edge. And I I hear you, but we can certainly decide that we've heard about skin cancer. But we balance that as, as uh, you know, artificial suntan lotion, is that maybe worse? Uh, and then you go tan. And then you hear a story that says, actually, did you know the real problem in Europe is underexposure to sun because people don't get to get vitamin <laughs> D synthesis. And then people kind of like, ah, I'll just kind of moderate. And then you go exposed to the sun. The issue with radiation is not it being there. And certainly Germans love natural high radiation. They go to, yeah. you know, bad, bad towns, right? Bad towns. Why? Why are they going there? You can heat your own water, right? Why do you have to go to a hot spring? Why do you have to go to a mineral spring? You can even find your own minerals. Ah, but this stuff has radon in it, right? So it's got radiation. So people are specifically going for the natural radiation hotspots. Do they think of it as radiation? No. And if they did, they wouldn't stop going. They would just reprogram that in their brain to not count, or they would maybe start liking nuclear more. Just hmm. So yeah. we can deal with radiation. It is a relatively new phenomenon. But I just think of, you know, some famous images, very late in Egyptian culture, but very ancient by our standards of like rays of light coming down from the, you know, the sun god and, and hitting us. And I mean, we can deal with rays. What we can't deal with is our own death and the apocalypse from nuclear weapons. Yeah, I, I was trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who doesn't know anything about nuclear, right? Because once you know, it's very hard, like it's the curse of knowledge, right? A, a good teacher is someone who can put themselves in the shoes of their students. So I was trying to imagine like someone on the street, right? Random, what are they imagining is going on inside of nuclear power plant? And there was kind of a bolt of lightning that hit me and it was like, They imagine that in there is a nuclear explosion that's being contained, like a tiny one, a miniature one. It's almost like an internal combustion engine, right? But with a bunch yeah. of nuclear explosion and you try to contain it. And if there's a, a mistake or a breach, the explosion just gets out and the power plant blows up like a, a nuclear weapon. They don't understand that it's just like a, a pile of stuff, right? That if you send neutrons, it eats up. Even just uh, educating people about the basics of this would probably reassure a bunch of them. Not as much as we would expect if they were rational about it to begin with. But I think the nuclear industry has done such a bad job of you know, an outreach to people, education. Like People are walking around and they're against something that they don't even know what it is. The nuclear industry completely misunderstands the nature of the concern. And they also completely misunderstand the nature of the professional opposition. The professional opposition is not asking for safer nuclear plants. They don't care. The professional opposition is not asking for different types of nuclear plants. They're not asking for a solution to the waste, certainly not any specific solution in any specific spot. So the nuclear industry is used to checklists and order and quietness and not quite secrecy, but staying away from people to not worry them. Yeah. And a lot of people in nuclear are just not um, creative, experienced socializers like they're not super used to being around tons of strangers in lots of conversations serious respectful conversations and understanding the other people's point of view and that's part that shows partly in communications yeah that's why i feel like my energy journey has been pretty long like i've been following this stuff for maybe i don't know 20 years and i kind of went through the usual stuff right you kind of start learning about oh oil is bad and oh we got to get off coal and then Like you kind of fall into the Amory Lovins kind of rabbit hole where it's like, oh, well, megawatts, right? That's such a good meme in itself. I love this. I love exploring this yeah. because in Amory Lovins' day, peace was restored. The empires were falling apart. 
the Great War had already happened. The only thing left was to avoid nuclear war between the Soviets and America. And it, you could do that by just making, uh, you know, nuclear go away. Right. So Amory Lovins came into a world that was already prosperous for him. And the only thing to do was to change that prosperity or channel it or reduce it maybe. I mean, he didn't want, he, lo- he loves a good rich life. He's done very, very well for himself. And he lives in a way that he admits would be difficult, you know, big detached mansion and the hills, lots of energy to get there and get back, whatever. But maybe if he, his message is so important, it doesn't matter that he doesn't live in a scalable way, right? So Amory Lovins, his big problem was reducing a thing, not really like increasing it, providing yeah. for all. It's all about all. efficiency, cutting stuff, making it lighter. And all that is, sounds very, very good. And it's very elegant. And it appeals to the engineering mindset, right? In the time that Amory Lovin started being active and out there, what really happened was nuclear was becoming the cheapest. So the problem was not the nuclear was expensive. So the nuclear is an expensive thing. I, I expensive to build, I guess. Yeah. But it was cheap to build. Yeah. Well, probably in the early days. Yeah. That was a problem that had to be solved. What had to be solved was that nuclear was too cheap. They had to make it more expensive and maybe cancel it. So a lot of the people who actually, you know, I said it's a binary. Either you do like nuclear and it doesn't matter how much you say it has problems, you want it to be there. And then there are the people who don't like nuclear and no matter how much professionalism they have and how many facts they say, they're only they're going to choose their facts and choose their professionalism around wanting no nuclear. Yeah? Yeah. So for an Amory, he saw nuclear being cheap as part of the problem because he was convinced that somehow it didn't add up and, you know, the grid just wasn't that efficient. He was wrong on a bunch of really basic things and was proven wrong pretty rapidly, but it didn't matter because nearly uniquely, he was not anti-capitalist and he was not anti-growth per se. So it made him a friendly for any energy group or any mainstream group that wanted to go in a different direction or wanted their product to do better versus somebody else without ending business or ending capitalism or ending prosperity. Because there's many people who said things like him, but they actually wanted there to be no power at all. Or they See what I'm saying? Yeah. So he, yeah. was, he was consumable by the professional public, by a whole generation of baby boomers graduating from elite institutions and finding their way in the world. He was palatable. Yeah. He worked well with them. He was not a radical politically. One of the rare good communicators in the space, and he became a kind of shelling point for everybody who wanted to still do business, but wanted to kind of be on the side of the Greens, right? Oh, it feels like at the time, his vision of like, oh, everything's going to be decentralized, small scales, everybody's got their little you know, like wind turbines and solar panels and batteries. And it's- Wait, no, 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 fossil fuels, fossil fuels. He was for fossil fuels, but he thought you should burn your own right there in your house or, you know, have a bucket of oil for your little generator for your apartment. He couldn't, his mind did not, his intuitions were not good enough. I mean, didn't have engineering training really. So mm-hmm. he, although he had physics understanding and he had some, he had thermo understanding, he couldn't grasp intuitively what an AC grid does or even an AC grid with some long single DC ties or whatever. He couldn't, the scaling factor of that system, he couldn't grasp. Hmm. Yeah, that's the thing, right? It's easy to picture something in your head, but until you do the math about the scale of it, right? How many gigawatts of of generation do you need to replace? Or, or how about this? How about this? Just how low are your losses from having a few large power plants and a few wires to major population centers? It turns out that the load, the loss along this system is really, really small. And it turns out that people's behaviors are reasonably predictable such that you can add up 
throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the year. You can understand people's behavior, deal with a little bit of uncertainty from the natural environment, and then you can prepare the right mix of fuels and transmission to meet those needs fairly efficiently. He was against, he didn't think that that would happen. Or if we want to be mean, he was just not that smart ever and just got it wrong and had a whole career based on getting a mistake like that and being hmm. able to overcome it by just, I don't know. You said good communicator. Um, that's maybe a little generous. I think it's more like in a time where people were, there were the standards were extremely low. Yeah. He was at least talking to the public. Yeah. 20 years ago, when I got interested in this stuff, I didn't see anyone do a good debate with his ideas and be convincing to me at the time, right? I want to come back to what you said about nuclear was getting cheap, right? That's the other big thing, right? These days, it's like, can we even build large nuclear plants in the West? Like, or how expensive is it going to be? Are, are there going to be all these costs overrun? And the way I look at it in the, the, the 70s, when we were building a lot, like we were going up the learning curve and down the cost curve. And if you standardize on, on some models, right, kind of like France did instead of the US with its bunch of different models. In theory, you should be able, like any industry, to get economies of scales. And as you repeat the process, you get better at it and you can do it faster and cheaper. But then at some point, things turned around and things started getting much more expensive. And I'm curious on your view of that. Is it, is it all just regulation? Is it, did something get lost in, in the mix where we, we, the West stopped being able to build large projects? Like what happened there? What was the turning point? There was a big secular trend of getting worse at large projects. So that's there. Then on top of that, there was a special distinguishing concern with anything radiation related. So I visited a decommissioned nuclear plant yesterday. Like, I mean decommissioned, like down to the dirt. It's just gone. Just gone. Completely gone. And it was there producing millions of people's worth of electricity less than 20 years ago. And now it's completely and 100% gone. Right? So... We know how to like tear down things really easily, but we're becoming unskilled at construction. But here's the thing. We had a presentation about this decommissioning process, and it was clear that the level of concern being given to activities even peripherally connected with nuclear was absolutely off the charts compared to anything, even including radiation that wasn't nuclear. This town was devastated by losing a nuclear plant just about what, 60, 70 kilometers north of Chicago, along Lake Michigan. It was devastated by losing the nuclear plant. Recently, there have been fatal accidents at the other industrial facilities in town. All it did was just kill people, hmm. blow up a bunch of the factory. Like, and these are chemicals, these are carcinogens, and it's just like, it just kind of rolls off people's backs and it's just not a big issue. And it you know, wasn't prevented by regulation clearly. So... It's the special attention, unique attention given in the West. I mean, even if Russia funds these efforts in the West, they're not like going to get too crazy on their own equipment, right? This is just for <laughs> other countries, yeah? So this special concern with nuclear, an obsession with anything to do that might be do, you know, connected with nuclear waste, that's just, that helped intensify this slowdown in abilities, this slowdown in construction time, this splintering of cooperative labor workforces into squabbling groups with different interests, many of which did not have an interest in finishing the nuclear plant projects, just hmm. permaconstruction. And then designers of nuclear plants that were always tweaking to try to undo the construction slowdowns or respond to the latest safety regulation or just add more cleverness in ways that also increased 
the importance of the reactor designer as opposed to just a provider of blueprints once. See what I mean? Hmm. Yeah. And then you lost it entirely. Like I've been searching around for things that might help. Here's one. What if we just banned computers in the design of nuclear plants? Just banned completely, 100%. <laughs> what if? And everything had to be done with drafting. And you had to be, you had to have an intimate connection between drafting and dudes working and the foreman and the crew. What if we banned cell phones on the work site? No cell phones. If you're a manager, you got to be there. How about that? See what I mean? What if, what if we went back to the analog methods that apparently worked in making nuclear plants for a few hundred million dollars and in inflated today's costs that are today still operating and are going to keep operating total lifespan of what, 80 years, 100 years? For, you know, uh, $20, $30 a megawatt hour, radically competitive compared to any of the fossil fuels that are blowing up. Certainly better than firm renewables. So how did we manage that without a fancy tools? I think we just have a lot of distractions. And a lot of the people who are in program development, finance, uh, up in the high, the white collar jobs, a lot of them are coming into those jobs with very little hands-on experience or engineering intuition. And it just means there's this splintering, this Tower of Babel effect in big construction projects, even essential ones that are just really important for long-term prosperity like nuclear. And it feels to me like, at least in the U.S., like you get the incentives that you put in, right? So it feels to me like regulators have certain incentives and all of the risk is on one side, right? So if they say no to everything, if they, they never approve a new design, a new, a new plant, nothing bad happens because their incentives are only about safety, right? All of the reviewing that they do for these plants and these designs, they're not paying for it. It's the, it's the company that submits it that, that pays for it, or mostly, I think. I, I hear you. Let me defend the NRC a little okay. before we can attack it again. Every person I've talked to with knowledge of the people working at the NRC say they're professionals, they are excited about nuclear energy, and they want to see it succeed. So none of the things you just said are necessarily false, just we need to yeah. think of it in terms of how do we match up the outcomes we're getting That's the thing with institutions. Everybody has good intentions, but then you put a certain incentive and then people are going to follow this incentive. And if, if I worked at the NRC, I may do the same thing that they're doing now, right? But it feels, it feels to me anyway, like the, the analogy I would say is like if the FAA was given the, the mission, the goal, we never want an airplane crash ever again. Like that's your, that's your only goal, like make it happen, right? Then what would they do? Well, you don't approve new planes and you start not approving new parts and you, you, you're super, super, super paranoid. You don't let the old anything. ones operate too long. Exactly, right? You start grounding fleets and all of your risk is in letting anything fly, right? Because something this could go bad at any time. It gets us back to this main problem. The people fighting nuclear on the basis of cost and safety are not looking for safe or cheap nuclear. They're looking for no nuclear, meaning the framing of the issue where one side says, We have problems with the costs and safety and the other side says we'll create a bureaucracy to make the safety problems go away or we'll make a new reactor to make the costs go down those weren't good faith hmm. complaints well i, I may re misrepresent this thing but i've heard from the alara right as low as recently pos uh, possible or something like that achievable They're achievable right there's this regulation that basically means at the end of the day that anything that you do to reduce costs well now you have more margin just reinvested in more safety right So nuclear can never be more cost competitive than, than it basically is at this point, because any money it saves, well, you could just put that money into more safety and more safety. And you have plans that should, like the cost should go down over time 
if you follow like, okay, old plants were more analog, they had like thousands and thousands of wires running all around. In the digital world, you could transfer all of that data, even if you have tons of redundancy with much fewer wires, right? That, that should lower the cost of at least that part. But because all of the regulations are based on like, you almost can never change anything. And if you do something that saves money, well, the money saved on these wires has to be reinvested in whatever, right? A, a, a bigger vessel or this or that. It feels to me like that from the outside anyway. Maybe I'm wrong about it. Well, certainly lots of the new companies in nuclear are saying that that's exactly what they're going to solve. I don't mind a thousand wires. I don't mind a million parts as long as you're good at installing, operating and maintaining them. So yeah. like I, this obsession with fewer parts to get better performance, we haven't seen that borne out on construction sites. Because if you have one on your critical path that isn't going, then that's a bigger, that's a bigger disruption than a thousand pieces on your critical path that are going. Absolutely. No, everything everything else equal, you should want a simpler design, but everything is, is not equal in this case, probably. But what, yeah, and what does simple mean? I just don't know what simple means anymore, and we certainly can operate extremely complicated machinery. We're special. We're special uh, special monkeys here on this, earth, right? <laughs> we, can, we can do that. What I don't like is change for change's sake, but I also acknowledge that if you've lost the ability to do the old things, doing even the old things again may be new and may have many of the disadvantages of the new. I would say this, building reactors is a program. If we don't commit to a program, we're never gonna get frequent, routine, yeah. successful nuclear plants. I think it's probably what's behind my thinking, right? If there was a long unbroken chain of building a certain type of plant since like you know 40 years ago, well, keep the same design, it works, right? But if there's a kind of big empty void in the middle, and now you have to restart again with, like, you don't have the same workforce, you don't have the same institutional knowledge, right? Not everything is written on a piece of paper. A bunch of people knew a bunch of stuff in their heads. They passed it on to the people they worked with. I feel like we probably lost a bunch of that, so we kind of have to restart some of it, probably. So maybe that's, that's a good occasion to try to simplify some designs. But at the same time, I know that the cost of a plant is like, you know, if it takes 10 years to build, like, I, I've heard things about how the, just the, 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 the interest on the, the debt that you borrow is like, 50% or, or more of the cost of the plant, right? So it's not by saving some wires it or depends. some concrete. It depends. The, the plants that are disastrously over budget and delayed in Georgia in the United States are not, they have a decent interest rate. It's not terrible. Hmm. That's okay. not the issue. The issue is that at many stages, things like pouring of concrete or knitting of rebar were not done correctly. Now we can say, oh, there should have been a way to say, ah, oh, it's good enough for jazz. Well, it wasn't good enough for the nuclear regulators. That nuclear regulator issue, or should a construction company be able to deliver what they claim that they could build? Because what would that mean about maybe higher risk things, right? Are yeah. they just going to keep not building what they said they would? And the blueprints, you know, the blueprints weren't really done when they started or got it approved to build. So that that's a bit of an issue. There are a bunch of things that kind of are, are our fault, if we're saying our to mean the nuclear industry. Yeah. Hmm. There are a bunch of companies that got contracts on that project that were not in condition to deliver on nuclear contracts. They just weren't. And you think it's because of this kind of the big lack gap. of practice, basically? Yeah, lack of practice, big gap, extreme enthusiasm, hubris, misidentifying what went wrong last time, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. We hmm. got carried away with marketing terms and, you know, Westinghouse, they make good fuel and stuff, but they were, they, they had never built the reactor that they based this reactor on. They called it an evolution of an of another design, but the other design was pretty new and they never built that. Just dumb stuff like that, you know? 
which is too bad because it's like there are so few being built that if there's a problem, it kind of takes the whole thing. <laughs> well, well, yeah, here, and not in China, but yeah, that's the thing, right? It, it's already so hard to get just one project started. If it goes wrong, it goes over budget. You know that everybody anti-nuclear is going to use that in all their materials to try to convince the next one not to be built. But in the end, it does something. It's the hardest energy source, shall we say, that we know how to operate. Um, we know it can deliver an entire nation's worth of electricity reliably over extremely long time horizons. It can do it nearly insensibly to the weather or to natural disasters. And it provides stable, long-term, meaningful employment to those who work in it. Yep. Even the most disastrous nuclear plants that eventually turn on and are allowed to keep operating pay themselves off. That's pretty wild. Even the most successful wind and solar projects sometimes struggle to make a profit for anyone along the chain, even the original equipment manufacturers. Right. So it's a paradox. Yeah, that's what I said, I think, when there was news recently that NRC had granted Bogle the permission it needed to begin loading fuel at its leisure. When it's ready, it can start loading fuel. And that made a big flurry of, well, finally, or man, that took so long, we can't do this again. And other people saying, this opens the new nuclear era. Now that we've got this monkey off our back. So on one side, I was like, hold your horses. We're not there yet. We still got to learn to operate this thing well. And we still got to actually turn it on. And then on the other side, I was going to say, look, this thing turning on and starting to crank cheap energy on an ongoing basis, it's not the construction cost, the cheap energy on a daily basis, straight into an ultra high fuel environment high fuel price environment, gas and coal, both very expensive now. Yeah. That's going to that's gonna heal a certain number of wounds. It really will. It doesn't mean we're going to do that type necessarily straight up again, but it does mean that in a world where we're looking for successful outcomes, we have a bunch of successful cheap processes that aren't leading to particularly excellent outcomes. And at some point that does matter. Instead, in nuclear in the West, we've forgotten how to build and we have destructive delayed, painful processes that will lead to successful outcomes. Hmm. How, do you, how do you explain that to people? It's a difficult thing, right? Yeah, you brought up a very good point, I think, about the existing fleet, right? And about if you just keep some plants operating. I think it's very easy for a casual observer to say, oh, this was built in the 60s and the 70s. And the... look at these old plants and think like, they're so old, like they must be at the end of their life. But the more I've looked into it, they, they look like, you know, ships of Theseus, where every plank has been replaced a few times. Like it's like Abraham Lincoln's axe, right? Where he replaced the head and the handle a few times. Is it the same thing? What, what's the real age of the thing, right? It, there's the year of construction. Okay, fine. But all that matters at the end of the day is, is it safe? Is it reliable? Is it producing well? And for most of these plants, it seems like almost not all of them, but every, almost every plan that gets shut down, gets shut down for political reasons rather than technical reasons. And that I don't know if we, if we can or get away. Or economic from. reasons that were engineered for political reasons. Yeah, or temporary, right? Natural gas is cheap for a few years. Like, ah, we don't need that anymore. And like, natural gas won't stay cheap forever. One of the legacies of Amory Lovins, he helped argue that you shouldn't just allow utilities to build and operate and amortize large efficient plants over a long period of time because that was hard energy as opposed to him who was from soft energy. <laughs> what does that even mean? Completely meaningless scientifically, but he suckered so many, so many people for whom that was a very convenient or profitable message. He suckered them into thinking it was some, you know, insightful guru. Well, let's talk about this shift of Theseus effect. And it brings up something painful for me, which is that the Germans built their nuclear plants, the ones that they are prepared to shut down in a few days. They built their nuclear plants forever. 
So what are the easy parts to replace? Little bitty parts, new fuel, new water coming in and going out, some cables, parking lot can be resurfaced. Those are some pretty easy things. A little harder, you want to replace the people, but since the jobs are extremely good and if you're not threatening the nuclear plants with shutdown or harassing kids out of daycare, which we've heard examples of in Germany for kids of, of parents of nuclear plant workers. Wow. Yeah, cancel culture, huh? Anyway, except for that stuff, it's pretty easy to attract competent and effective long-term employees. So that it's a little harder than small parts, but a little easier than some of the stuff we're going to get to. Okay, now really harder parts, large pieces. What are large pieces? So in many plants in the world, steam generators are these giant parts that take hot, pressurized coolant from the core, and then they boil water using that heat, and then that water boils into steam, steam goes into turbine, turbine spins, let's go on. So the large parts, like steam generators, that's a big operation to replace. And if we're bad at big operations, we can sometimes mess it up. That has been the death of several nuclear plants. Operations to replace steam generators where some weakness in the process or problem in, in installing or troubleshooting has been seized on as a political opportunity to kill the plant or financial reason to kill the plant. Hmm. Now let's get even bigger, bigger parts. The reactor vessel itself, can you replace it? Theoretically, if you're like the Germans and you build a massive hatch, you might be able to do something there. But we haven't yet seen a reactor vessel replacement in the plants that have a big reactor vessel. The Canadians have a reactor type that the core is not a reactor vessel. It's a bunch of pipes. You can obviously replace those pipes every 30, 35 years as they wear out, and you can have a more or less new reactor, at least as far as the core is concerned. What the Russians do, for example, they just say, ah, why do a bunch of modeling? It should be good enough if we heat up the metal and release the tensions that have built up over time from neutrons slamming into them that leak out of the core. So the neutron embrittlement is the concern. Most places in the world, they test the steel. They compare it to similar steel elsewhere. They understand the aging process more and more as the reactors get older, and they see that the steel is fine. They're very conservatively sized, massive, massively thick pressure vessels, that's fine. The Russians heat it up and it's like rewinding the clock about 10 years on the damage of the steel. Hmm. And it just hasn't been a limitation anywhere on earth. People have tried to make it a limitation. They've attempted to use it as an excuse to shut down. And they may be successful in getting a large, excellent reactor shut down in Belgium by saying that the reactor vessel just isn't nice. But like even the owner, you you talk to him and it's like, yeah, it's kind of like media. It's not popular to keep this. And I'm like, yeah, it's not popular to have energy if it seems like you can just keep it. But in an energy crisis, when people start suffering, the popularity may change overnight, shall we say. And in Belgium, there is a big change in sentiment now as they're coming to the last days of their long delayed required legal shut-off date for all the reactors. And it's 50% of their national electricity in a horrible gas crisis. Hmm. And they have no replacement except for gas and imports from other countries that don't have enough imports or gas. I I don't know about Belgium, but I know, I think in the U.S., another perverse incentive is that some utilities basically make more money decommissioning a reactor than operating it sometimes. They make much more steady and reliable and safe and politically untouchable money. Right which can be valuable. <laughs> these, these attributes can be valuable. Again, we're talking about the leadership from a weak, lazy, entitled generation. 
They don't, and they're going to expect us to wipe their butts. They're going to expect us to keep them alive in nursing homes and all that other stuff as they dismantle the equipment that physically supports our prosperity. It's disgusting. It is absolutely revolting. I didn't ask you your age specifically, so I hope I'm not uh, catching you in some of my blast wave, but it, it's very upsetting. Oh, I'm 40. Yeah, no, you're, you're good. You're good. We're good. <laughs> I left out one thing, by the way. The concrete, the domes, the giant pressure domes, yep. pressurized containment that keeps any meltdown contained, right? Well, we've got concrete domes, maybe not like pressure vessel, like pressure tight domes, but we've got concrete domes that are coming on 2,000 years old, right? So that part, we just keep the concrete up. We should be okay. Keep it inspected. Keep it coated if necessary. Just keep it in good condition. Keep the, the rebar inside in good condition. We should be good there. They're built pretty conservatively too. So Yeah, I can imagine. So yeah, there you go. There's our, there's our permanence. One of the only issues that I can see that's a little bit trickier are reactors built that consume as part of their cooling processes scarce water. So I've got some concerns we have to work through on the relative importance of different water consumption in the deserts of, say, Arizona, where America's largest nuclear plant is, right in the desert. They currently evaporate treated but undrinkable wastewater from the city of Phoenix. Hmm. And if, they're, if that's a contract where people may say, we need that PP water, you know? We need that, we need that uh, poo water back somehow here. <laughs> I don't know, golf courses or something. Then there may be a struggle over those water rights. But other than that, I'm afraid these nuclear plants are just going to last. Yeah. Well, on, the, on the technical side, which is probably the, not the side that's going to kill them. Yeah. While we are on the plants, the next thing I, I'd like to talk about is the waste, right? Because that's what everybody's thinking of. As soon as you mention nuclear power, it's like, yeah, but the waste, right? It's, it's terrible. We don't know what to do. Like, we all know what everybody thinks about it. It lasts for thousands of years. It's weird, the double standard there, where people never ask, like, how many, how long does mercury and arsenic and cadmium, and all these other pollutants, right? how long do they last? What's their half-life? And they ask about this waste as if it were out there killing sea turtles or people or something. Yeah. They ask about it as if it were an unfolding crisis. And certainly there are plenty of unfolding crises that people don't ask about either. So it's, it's not like it's even mercury that's bioaccumulating in organisms in the ocean and showing up in fish that pregnant women shouldn't eat, right? It's not even an ongoing crisis like that. It's, yeah. it's currently well-managed and is going to be well-managed on the orders of decades looking ahead at the time. There's no fast failure of stuff. They aren't connected systems. They aren't interlinked. There's no way to spread failure in nuclear waste. So it gets us back to the fact that the nuclear waste is a little bitty mental proxy for little nuclear bombs and for those who think that the reactors are big nuclear bombs, if you stop the legal ability to move fuel through the reactor by stopping the legal ability to do something with the waste, you can shut down the plant without banning the plant. Hmm. So we've got Taiwan that has, an, has a, you know, a China surrounding it with boats, more and more threat every day. And there's a city mayor who has, has it under his power to block the offloading of spent fuel into spent fuel canisters. And that has shut down or threatens to shut down a nuclear plant in Taiwan, one of the most energy starved, energy desperate, energy dependent countries on planet Earth. And just a mayor with a permitting process is able to put his nation on, his, on, the, on their knees. It's phenomenal. And I'm not claiming to know better than that mayor or whatever, but I certainly know that nuclear waste isn't a problem. It's a stand in for deeper concerns yeah. that have nothing to do with the waste at all. 
I think it goes back to the psychology that we discussed. First of all, people don't know about opportunity cost, right? They don't do, well, we, we got to do this or otherwise that, right? So people in their head, it's like, well, between nuclear waste and the perfect world of rainbows and puppies, I'll take the rainbows and puppies, right? Well, who wouldn't? Like, nuclear waste is not a good thing in itself. But if you don't produce your power with nuclear, what you mostly get is coal and gas. And that stuff has also downsides that are much bigger, that are killing more people with air pollution, that are affecting climate and strip mining for coal. And, like, all that stuff has these problems. But people don't, don't see the link between the two, right? If you don't do one, well, you probably do the other. The other thing that I think, it sounds a bit crazy, but... I think it's true. I think people have this fictionalized view of nuclear waste as, in a, as if it's in a movie or Hollywood, right? They think nuclear waste is a, is a bad thing against nature and nature is going to get us back if we produce nuclear waste, right? So it's almost like it's sentient. If we put it in concrete and steel and we bury it somewhere where the best geologists in the world tell us that nothing has moved for millions of years, well, they kind of see like the Hollywood music is playing in the background and there's a volcano that's going to pop there or like a crack is going to... Like it's like as if it's sentient. Like a, a dirty, cursed corpse exactly. returning to the surface to punish us for... It's one of the reasons why I say just let's put off any decisions about burying the waste until after people aren't scared anymore. Finland now has a repository in the earth but they're also not scared of nuclear waste. See, I don't accept the argument that Finland is not scared of nuclear waste because they spent 10 years building an underground repository. It's the other way around. Yeah. Because they're not scared of nuclear waste, they could just get a sensible option done. Maybe a little expensive, not physically necessary, but good enough for all involved and a simple enough solution for now, right? And forever if you make it, but whatever. Maybe we dig it back up and use the uranium at some point. Who knows? Yeah. But my point here is that if we try to do something especially permanent about the nuclear waste while people still think it's something it isn't, people still think it's more deadly than it is, if people still think there's more of it than there is, then we're going to waste a shitload of money and people are going to try to block it anyway. And the more you try to go to the extreme to reassure people, the more you convince them it must be super bad if you have to build this thing in the middle of the desert, right? I think in the same way that, you know, I try to imagine what the average person thinks is going on inside a nuclear plant, right? And they think it's like a nuclear explosion that's contained. I think people hear about nuclear waste and it's like, oh, that's thousands of years. And so they imagine that like a tiny grain drops and like everybody around immediately dies. And like, and so when, when I start reading a bit more about it and I realize that you know, the high-grade stuff, the super powerful stuff is the stuff that decays the fastest, right? And so the half-life of nuclear means that like, like after like decades, it's down by 90%, 99%. Like, yeah, I, know, I know you wrote some stuff about this, right? And the stuff that lasts for thousands, thousands of years is the less powerful stuff, the stuff that emits less radiation. Once you understand that, it's like... And you realize that even if the people who were trying to convince you that nuclear waste was dangerous were so dumb they didn't understand the science... You keep pushing back, you're going to find people whose professional job it was to both understand the science and misrepresent it to the public. Yeah, That's a little bit, that part is something maybe to get a little angry about, a little frustrated. I think we, we kind of uh, almost talked about it directly earlier, but there's a bunch of interests that make a lot of money if nuclear goes away or get political power if nuclear goes away, right? So there's been like, they, they found that Russia and Putin has been founding green NGOs in different places to argue against nuclear because, well, if you're more dependent on gas... Even as they train hundreds of brilliant young people from around the developing world at a time in their nuclear universities in Moscow to go home and deliver nuclear programs. Exactly. So. In the US, like some, some large owner of gas interests have been funding some people to block hydro lines from Quebec going down in the eastern seaboard, right? 
brings us to an interesting issue. I understand it's quite close to home too. Yeah. As in, you're from you're from Quebec originally. Yeah, yeah, I am. As you can tell from the accent, maybe uh, it's it's that's been my journey of learning about power. Right, growing up, it's only been about hydropower and anything electric is kind of like oh, it's nice, it's clean. It's when I start consuming more like U.S. media, starting well, when you you turn the lights on, like some coal is burning somewhere, and that feels very very different, right? But I I kind of wish Quebec just went all out and just kept building more and more and exporting more and more. And the people around were receptive to it because that seems to be one of the very, very large sources of very clean power that we have around North America. But we got bad at building in general. Just anti-nuclear attitudes to tear down nuclear and stop construction from being done effectively end up being part of a general inability to build anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So So here's what I would say about Quebec. You had a working nuclear plant and you tore it down. And guess what? That nuclear plant does really well in the winter. You know what doesn't do that well in the winter in hmm. Quebec? Your hydro, you know, your entire energy yeah. system, or at least your entire electricity system besides fossil fuel heating. So we actually have an issue where when Quebec needs energy the most, you have the least hydro. That has not stopped you from going to everyone around you to sell contracts for your hydro. People claim that we could tear down New York City's most secure power plant, Indian Point, because we're going to replace it with hydro. So the second that plant got torn down, those same groups are like, actually, we just rethought over the last 24 hours. We don't like those lines. <laughs> got you, which is yeah. it tells you some of the attitude. This elite money is not even about hydro or lines or anything like that, because the hydro's already built and Quebec's not building much more. So there you go. Or anymore, I don't think. So it's not even you can't even make an argument for more environmental issues. And certainly they were fine with replacing any point with natural gas. These are the anti-fossil fuel environmental groups that were Right. But they also block pipelines, too. So you actually realize that these environmental groups that tear down nuclear plants, they are weirdly specifically trying to strip away all the energy sources and not replace them. Yeah. Or at least the ones that work, say, in a giant winter storm or a a cold spell, something like that. Here's what's really dangerous about the hydro that New York is going to get from Quebec. I have not seen the contract myself, but I've heard from people who say that Quebec retains the right to not deliver electricity if it's really needed. Mm, yeah, no. Sounds a little bit dangerous. Great for Quebec. No, that's a solid deal for you guys because you're going to have shortages because you keep selling a lot of it and you don't have enough in the winter. But that's really bad for the people who are signing up their major metropolises for your electricity that there's not going to be enough of as long as you need it a lot. As long as everyone's desperate for it, you can't have it. <laughs> yeah, that's the, the only time you can't have the umbrella is when it rains, right? Yeah, that's sort of like that. Or or that your umbrella is super cheap as a parasol, but you would be fine with any number of solutions like walking in the shade uh, when it's not raining. Yeah, okay, so here's something else. Ontario is almost completely decarbonized electricity between hydro and nuclear. It's about 40, yep. 60, roughly. But they're going to shut down a giant chunk of their nuclear in just a few years. Why? Well, because it was cheaper to you know buy hydro from Quebec and do natural gas. Well, there's not that much availability and it's not that cheap anymore. And so the business conditions have changed, but they, we still haven't succeeded in getting a reopening of the business case to keep that nuclear plant online. And of course, that nuclear plant is extremely secure energy supplies for Toronto. It's the closest one to, to Toronto. Yeah, Pickering. Yep. So what are they going to do? Well, you know, hydro from Quebec is going to be a major player, except that you don't, you keep, Quebec doesn't really have extra, certainly not when the energy is most necessary. And we're going to see that again. We're already seeing that in Norway. We're in Norway. Here's what everyone knew about Norwegian hydro. There was more of it than you can ever need. And it's crazy cheap. 
Now there's not of it, not enough, and it's gone up 5, 10x, 15x in price in one year. A year ago, I was in Norway about this time, trying to talk to people about, hey, what about some nuclear? And they're like, why would we do that? We make hydro for ourselves, we share some of it, and then we make fossil fuels. And we're, since we're the cleanest fossil fuels, we'll be the last producer. And I was saying things like, well, you know, if your fossil fuels are too much, you might actually have a big economic problem outside. And since your money that you feed yourself with is kind of from investments in that broader economy, this could be an issue that comes back to you. Also, since you're selling hydro to almost everybody, and since everybody else is stripping out their power plants, especially nuclear, saying, it's fine, we got Norwegian hydro. Well, that's not great. And then one of the arguments that I tried to make, it just didn't, everyone's like, climate change, climate change, climate change. I'm like, ah, climate change? You're meaning that the weather and the climate are changing? Yep. Okay, so if the weather and the climate are changing, do you think that'll change like wind and precipitation patterns? Yep. So then you're fighting climate change by getting more energy that use a changing and less reliable source of energy. And they sit there and you see it start to crank and then you're thinking, but you're in a position to make important national discussions happen. You're, depending on who I was talking to, you're, you're actually an important person who should be aware that if climate change is what you're talking about, that can, it can happen and then you won't be able to get climate energy. And it's like, they've never even thought of that before. Oh, hmm. right. Rain comes from the sky and like snow, it could change. But you see the level of thinking? This is what I mean by weak flabby leadership they've had it easy and they've just they've just not been good stewards if i can make a corporate business analogy it sounds like there's the builder the the, the founder that builds up the company and then they leave it to their kids who didn't go through all of that and that's usually when the problem starts happening right it feels like this generation a lot of the infrastructure that we have came from you know a long time ago and we, we've kind of maintained it and added a little bit but I don't know how we get out of that, right? Because yeah, crisis. I, 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 hydro is great in many ways, but if if it's used in the ways that you're describing, by you know removing other good sources and making people dependent on it when it may not come, that's the wrong way to use it, right? There's there's the right way and the wrong way to do things, and it feels like everybody's so short-term thinking. Well, it's probably going to be fine this year, next year. Yeah, but what about five, ten, twenty years? And if the response to the changes takes some time, yeah. that's when it gets particularly dangerous because you can get into these long choke points where not enough power plants were built in a certain period. Then they all start to go down. You reframe your power plants going offline as like carbon success or whatever, which, yeah, the carbon numbers may go down, but that's not guaranteed to because you, you've replaced carbon fuels with reliable energy. That may be because you're getting lucky and because you're failing to invest. Yeah. And in this case, that's what we're seeing across a lot of Europe. And even a lot of what we would consider success feels to me like looking at part of the system instead of the whole system. And by that, I mean, like we've deindustrialized so much in the West that, you know, the demand for power has kind of like plateaued and gone down a bit. And we're like, OK, uh, th this is a great success. But all of these industries are now somewhere in Asia running on coal or something of the sort. And basically, all of these emissions are still in the system, right? The, the big climate winds that we think a bunch of Western countries have, have had has basically just been shipping some emissions somewhere else where the power grid is much dirtier and there's fewer like uh, environmental regulations about how they go about it. Well, one, let's go back to our favorite energy guru, Amory Lovins. He argued that electricity itself was the wrong system. And now his organization and even him, he's arguing that electric vehicles are good. And you're like, wait, you were thinking, you're saying that the grid was bad. Electricity generation was bad. Local right-sized 
fossil fuels and renewables were the right thing. You're just flipping around. And you were also saying we needed less of everything. But now you're saying we need something that's going to be more of the grid and more reliability required of the grid. And they made that really smooth shift where they went from saying grids are bad, power plants are bad, utilities are bad. And then they're saying, no, actually, it's good now because you can do it with wind and solar. But, of course, the wind and solar isn't good enough to rely on for a bulk energy system that has to work regardless of the season or if it's a bad year or a good year for wind and solar. It ends up mattering quite a lot indeed that you just went from attacking the grid to saying we actually need the grid, but you didn't adjust your preconditions. Why did you decide the grid was bad? Because the big things that were being built by the managers and operators of the grid were the nuclear plants, and you didn't like the nuclear plants, so you decided that the thing that was necessary to grow nuclear, which was grid to distribute it to more customers, was bad. It was a proxy. Of course. I mean, he used thermal words, and he probably understood it in some way, but he was not, this was not a even then, there should have been easy intuition that was showing him that he was wrong on the most critical foundational things, that there's no choice between soft energy and hard energy. You can have soft parts of hard systems, hard parts of soft Like It's a stupid, stupid dichotomy that he proliferated. And then he should have also realized that if our fear of which apocalypse is coming switches from his obsession, which is nuclear war, on over to a new obsession, which is the climate change, well, then people are going to not... I mean, we, there's, we've only got enough room for a few apocalypses at a time. Maybe only one, right? And the young people, they just don't have nuclear war. Even nuclear war gets framed as something that might come about because of climate change or might cause climate change. or It's reframed. Yeah. Mm. And I'm not trying to say whether climate change is or isn't coming, how bad it will be or won't be or where or how unevenly it'll be distributed. Just that if that's a concern, nuclear provides stable energy without the carbon. Right. Right. And I think it's a good time to talk about wind and solar because that's the other argument that always comes up. It's like, well, we don't need nuclear because look at these charts, right? And it's like, okay, the cost of solar going down super quickly, the cost of wind going down super quickly, and then they show you, well, okay, it's intermittent, but here's a chart of battery storage production around the world and the cost of batteries, and they kind of all frame it in this Moore's Law kind of things, right? That doesn't quite work for infrastructure, but still, it's been impressive how costs have gone down. But the way I try to think about it is, like, if you look at the system as a whole, right, I'm trying to think about, well, okay, if you have five or 10% of stuff that's intermittent, right, the, the size of the fluctuation can only be so big, right? But if you have 50% or 70% of solar, and then there's a cloudy day, or the moves are going to be tens of percents in each direction. How much storage do you need to buffer that? And once in a while, these bad periods are going to last for a long time. So th then I start thinking, okay, even if batteries get cheap, right, do we have something better to do with batteries? We're trying to electrify transportation right now. So if we divert a large fraction of battery capacity production for the grid, then EVs are going to come slower, they're going to be more expensive, and we got to include this in the calculation for renewables. Because if solar and wind need batteries and they slow down transportation electrification, all of this carbon and pollution that's going to be released on this side, on transportation side, is kind of tied to wind and solar. But people would like to keep all those apart as if there, there's no like larger system that's going to be impacted. Anyway, that's a long question, but I'm curious what you think about this. Yeah, so basically the plan is you get into an industry and you promote that and as it creates problems, you say, we'll solve those. Well, from my point of view, we're getting along a path where the solving the problems that are being created from that path is getting harder and harder and harder and more difficult and more dangerous and might actually not happen. By this, I mean, we have made 
a system of incentives that wind and solar get first priority at almost everything. Then they have been cutting into the long-term capital return from the equipment that is still required to make the whole grid work. As the cost of electricity has gone up to pay for the attributes that are missing from wind and solar, the fuel-like attributes, shall we say, or the locational option of small compact energy sources that we don't have with wind and solar, as that goes away, there's a bigger and bigger gap left behind that has to be filled. Yeah. In many countries dealing with the Russian gas crisis or the global fossil fuel crisis, the answer is desperately turning back on older fossil equipment. Yeah, coal especially. But in terms of storage, we have this problem where the value of storage is dependent on having only a little bit to do a little bit of storage. As you need more and more storage, less frequently. I mean, less frequently, like microseconds and yep. milliseconds and then seconds and then little bitty buffering that batteries have been brilliant for. As you need minutes or hours or God forbid days from batteries, you start only infrequently using some of what batteries can do. And that's not enough to pay for batteries. Hmm. You need only a little bit to balance the moment to moment variations in the grid. You need a bit more to deal with swings of enough time to call a backup generator and get it back on, that sort of thing. Or call a major electricity user and use your get out of jail free that you sign them up for a cheaper average electricity rate in order to have them turn on off three times a year at your call. Like that's the way we've run industrial electricity in a lot of countries for many decades, almost from the beginning in some cases. Well, as that needs to be filled with batteries instead, as we use up our option value, the cards we have in our own deck, then the amount of batteries you need goes up geometrically, but the amount of money to pay for them goes down. So they, it very rapidly becomes just this extremely expensive intervention to make sure you can keep using very cheap power. Right. But it's also not the problem of whoever just did the solar wind country. It's not their issue. Not, not really. In fact, some of them are starting to add solar in part because of the major tax incentives behind it. Sorry, solar plus batteries, for example, part because of the major tax incentives. But then they have a problem. If you co-locate the batteries with the solar, you're stuck with the downsides of being out in the middle of nowhere where nobody is. You really need the battery near where people are, so you're near the customers. But you also need it near the solar. You kind of need it in both places. And you need a big transmission. And suddenly, the fact that the solar is cheap is not that important to the final cost of the service over time to consumers. Right. Which helps drive them off the grid and destroys the economies of scale and makes Amory Lovins right the whole time, <laughs> just merely by following his prescriptions. Self-fulfilling prophecy, I suppose. Even if you have storage, right? It feels to me like... Storage is more effective with something like a nuclear power plant than with intermittent power because you have this huge fixed cost asset that you want to run at 100% as much as possible. Well, if you have storage, when there's no demand at night, you charge the batteries and then the next day you, you discharge them and you keep your nuclear power plant running a lot more evenly. If you have few nuclear power plants, that's not so much of a problem because they're base low, they're always going to run out flat out. But if you ever get to a point where nuclear revives and it becomes a huge part of the, 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 the total power output of a country, kind of like in France, then uh, adding storage on top of it makes everything else more effective and more cost effective, it feels to me. You're not inventing anything. I have to, I have to apologize. To it's kind of what you. they did with pumped hydro, I think. Exactly. The vast majority of grid storage ever built was built by the same entities that were operating nuclear on the same grids. 
right? And why can't we do that anymore, right? Because it's a large construction. <laughs> it's a large construction project that disrupts a bit of the environment. Everything that was claimed as the priority. People weren't the priority. Industry wasn't the priority. I get it, but it's just, it was a critical part of clean energy systems. It's just that because the thinking, Amory Lovin's thinking says big, centralized, disruptive storage is bad. It would just make nuclear plants work better. And since his actual objective was stopping nuclear, then you don't want pumped hydro. Hmm. And you have to redefine the definition. You have to redefine energy sources in terms of whether they help or hurt the argument for hydro, which helps or hurt the argument for grids and nuclear. It's backwards, of course. It's always like there's what people say is going on and the real game behind. And once you know the real game that's going on, everything starts to make more sense, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, We managed to get we managed to get through an hour and a half here without talking about how we fix these issues beyond my jokes about banning cell phones and maybe <laughs> only paper drafting of designs. We didn't talk about what's coming in the future, what the answer is. I think that we should probably wrap up this first half and then we can come to the second half, the coming future and as soon as we can record again. That sounds great. That's that sounds like a great plan. I still have so much to talk about, so definitely let's do this again. All right. Sounds great. Well, thank you ha for having me on and I can't wait to see you soon. Thank you very much. Before before you go, uh, is there anywhere you'd like to send people uh, somewhere where they can follow your stuff, something you'd like to point out that's good about the topic, something good to read, to watch, to listen to, anything you want to plug here? Sure. So I run an energy consultancy, Radiant Energy Group. You can find it at radiantenergygroup.com and you can see some of our topical reports that we've released to the public including on the possibility of life extending the three German reactors and to return to service the other three reactors that they just turned off. And then you can follow my spicy tweets as I get my anger at bad leaders out online at Energy Bants, that's energy, B-A-N-T-S, on Twitter.com. Awesome. Thank you so much.